I'd like to invite you to turn with me to today's scripture. I'll be reading from the book of Acts, chapter 13. I'm going to start with verses 1 through 5, and then I'm going to pick up at verse 44 through 55. And I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a, life, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. Picking up at verse 44. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region, but the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirring up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. This is God's holy word. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Just quoting some of the Psalms. The ancient Jewish singers and songwriters pointed to a time when their God, the one true God, the God of Israel's name, would be praised and worshipped and adored and cherished across the earth. As far as the waters cover the sea, the prophet Isaiah once said, so shall there be a knowledge of the Lord. And in Luke chapter 13, we now see a transition from the Apostle Peter's ministry in Jerusalem and Judea to the Apostle Paul's ministry in the broad Greco-Roman world, in the Mediterranean world. The transition really takes place in Luke's history of the beginning of Christianity, the beginning of the global church, right here in chapter 13. And, and it's known by many scholars as Paul's first 
missionary journey. He went on three big missionary journeys, and because of a lack of time in the year, we're only going to just briefly touch. We're going to get, we're going to look at overviews of each of his missionary journeys. And the first one is right here, beginning in Acts chapter 13. Luke's transition in his history from emphasizing Peter to now emphasizing Paul is very important because the final phase of God's expansion plan for the church is going to unfold through the ministry of Paul. Remember his name was, his first name was Saul of Tarsus. If you were with us back in the fall, when we looked at Acts chapter 1, Jesus, before he ascended, he said to his apostles this, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, in Acts chapter 13, this is the birth of Christian missions. This is the beginning of the global Christian missions movement. Now, of course, before this point, there's mission activity in, in the church. We, you may remember Philip went to Samaria and evangelized the Samaritans. You may remember Philip met with an Ethiopian eunuch and told him about Jesus Christ. You may remember that Peter met with the Gentile centurion Cornelius. But this is the first organized grand-scale, cross-cultural approach to gospel sharing and proclamation and distribution and communication um, enacted by the early church right here in Acts chapter 13. Now, I want to ask you a question. Who is the first person that told you the message of Christianity, the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ died for sinners and offers reconciliation with God, forgiveness for sins, and eternal life by putting your trust in him and no longer in yourself or in people or institutions. We all heard that originally in different environments. Now, maybe today's the first time you ever heard that. Or maybe you're not a Christian, but you've, you've heard the Christian message before. So I just want to know from you, who is the first person who told you that message? Was it a, was it a parent or a relative or a friend or a coworker or a neighbor or somebody who was your enemy at the time? Was it a stranger? Or did you hear about it from like a public speaker? Maybe in an, in, an environment like this. Any, anybody willing to say where the, who, the, who first told them? Yeah? My good friend from high school, Michelle Vaccaro. Wow. Your good friend from high school, Michelle Vaccaro. That's an Italian last name. Did she make good pastry? Because, like, the best pastry place in Maryland is Vaccaro's in, in uh, Baltimore. Anyway, I digress. Sorry. I'll, we'll take that out of the recording. Yeah, in the back. A Sunday school teacher. Who else? Was that? Your Sunday school teacher. That's part of your testimony that your Sunday school teacher shared shared the gospel message with you. Uh, I thought I saw it. Yeah. My grandmother. Your grandmother. Who else? Any? Any? Yeah. Wow. So, so in a sense, a stranger who had come from a, a church you visited. Okay. Any, anybody else that fits a different category? Your mom. I think that's one of my first memories is my mother sharing the good news with me. Anyone else? Yeah. 
Me? So my son, Josh, remembers that it was me. Who else? Anyone else? Yeah. Your sister. Interesting. A lot of relatives, but not just relatives. Any, 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 anything else we haven't heard yet? So a piece of paper in Patterson Park. Had John 3.16 and you, you read John 3.16 on that piece of paper. Thank you. Diverse, diverse bunch of answers, you know. Um, I really want to say two things about Christian missions, because you, you may have heard lots of things. You may know in history uh, that in some situations, uh, Christian missionaries got themselves into trouble because their culture and their language and their personal identity was more important to them than the message itself. And you may have a negative view of the history of Christian missions. I hope, I hope to redeem your perspective today. Because at the heart of Christian missions are two things that you all kind of alluded to as you shared the person that first shared the good news of Jesus with you. God sent somebody to you. God sent somebody to you to share the news with you. Even if it was a stranger who left a piece of paper on a park bench. God sent somebody to you to share that news. And that person had to take some type of a risk to share that news with you. I've even found as a parent... Sharing the gospel with my children, there's still a fear of rejection. Because what if they don't accept what I believe? Or what if they think I'm unwise or, or stupid? Or what if they're embarrassed? I think, I, I think there's, a, there's a real risk for the people who reached out to you and shared that message with you. Maybe they were afraid of being rejected by you or, or, or looked down upon or disagreed with. In certain environments, maybe there's a, there's a, a, a personal risk for safety or reputation, or whatever it may be. But God sent someone to you, and that person took a risk to share that message with you. And so today, I want you to consider the fact that at the heart of Christian missions is a sending God and a sacrificial faith. God sends because he loves, and the people he sends make sacrifices to make it possible for the blessings of God to be distributed out to you and to me and to others. So today I want to talk to you about the goal of Christian missions and also the cost of Christian missions and the heart of Christian missions. The goal, the cost, and the heart of Christian missions. Now the goal of Christian missions, the end of it, the point of it all is worship. And I want to show you this right from Acts chapter 13, that the goal of missions is worship. It was in the context of worship that God gave the church in Antioch a mission. You read in, in verse 2, we're told, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then in Acts chapter 13, and, and I asked Michelle to just kind of focus on, read the beginning and the end, and we had to leave out for time's sake a lot in the middle. But what happens in the middle, you should go back and read verses 6 through 43. 
uh, because Acts 13 recounts Barnabas and Saul, their evangelistic ministry on the island of Cyprus. They sail to Cyprus and uh, they spend time in Cyprus and then they sail back to the mainland into Asia Minor, modern day Turkey. And, and they go to another Antioch, a different city called Antioch, Antioch near Pisidia. Pisidian Antioch, I'll, that's what I'm going to call it for the rest of the day. And uh, right there in Pisidian Antioch, Paul, Paul gives a, a wonderful public address. He gives this sermon, this speech in the Jewish synagogue. And the people who heard it, the Jews and, and the Gentile converts to Judaism, the proselytes and the God-fearers, the Gentiles who just liked hanging around uh, the Jews because of this God that the Jews worshipped, the Jewish community. Right? He preaches the sermon in the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch. And it says, and it said, uh, Luke tells us that they, many of them believed and they begged, they begged Barnabas and, and Paul to come back the next Sabbath. And so they do, and and that's where we pick up in verse 44. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. You may remember back uh, earlier in Acts how Cornelius was excited to hear the good news from Peter. And Cornelius grabbed all of his close relatives, his relatives and close friends and brought the whole town to his house. Well, in a similar way, it was almost as if the whole city, after a week of hearing about this news and this message, it's almost like the whole city, Jew and Gentile, they were all there in the synagogue waiting to hear what Paul and Barnabas had to say. And this, this whole progression in Acts 13, it highlights their methodology. Paul and Barnabas developed a pattern, a methodology for their missions. And you see it right here. I'm not suggesting it's a blueprint for us, but it's important to notice what they did. They would go, they would go to a foreign place and they'd find uh, one of the most influential towns or cities in that region. They'd start there. And the first thing they would do is they would find the Jewish community. They would go into a synagogue on the Sabbath. And whatever developed from there, they would just take the opportunity. But they would start with the Jewish community. And from there, they would take opportunities to reach out to the Gentiles as, as God opened doors and closed other doors. What happened often was they met hostility, and you see it here in this chapter. They were met with some type of establishment hostility. It could have been the, the Jewish religious establishment of the city or the town. It could have been the, the Gentile power structure, a Gentile businessman or Gentile civic leaders. Whoever's power and influence and welfare was threatened by the message and the advancement of Christianity because Christianity taught that by forgiveness of sins, rich and poor were equal. Slaves and free were equal. Race, socioeconomic class, people were equal because God forgives everybody and and offers his salvation to everybody. That was radical in the ancient Mediterranean world. And so the religious establishment of the Jews and the socioeconomic and civic establishment of the Gentiles in many cities and regions was threatened by the gospel. And so they they were met with opposition time and time again. Sometimes they were beaten up. Sometimes, as in this passage, they are ridiculed and belittled and insulted. 
But what happened through all of that opposition is it, it would raise more attention. It would raise more. It became a spectacle and more Gentiles became aware that something was going on and more Gentiles would believe and it would spread from a town or an influential city as we find out in verse 49 throughout regions. And that was what they did. They'd go from, from region to region and from city to city. And that's, that's how they approached missions. Barnabas and Paul. And Paul's, Paul had a very direct approach with Gentiles that was radical and unheard of. He was very direct. He would talk with and meet with Gentiles. And he would talk about how the Old Testament scriptures pointed to God's plan for saving even Gentiles. Uh, he was met with opposition. And, and, and what he said in chapter 13, verse 47 was this. And he quoted Isaiah chapter 49. I have made you a light for the Gentiles. This is God through the prophet Isaiah speaking to the people of Israel. I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. It's not that evangelism to Jews was now obsolete in the early church. No, they're, they're, they're just as hungry to reach their uh, a guy, a Jew like Paul is just as hungry, hungry and eager uh, to reach what he said in another book, his, his countrymen, uh, with the news of Jesus Christ. So that doesn't become obsolete, but now the Holy Spirit radically incorporates the Gentiles into the mission. Um, and we find out in verse 48, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life, believed. And the passage, the chapter ends with these words because Paul, Paul and Barnabas are kicked out and probably brutally. Uh, they were kicked out of the city and had to move on. But it says the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So the chapter begins and ends with worship. Do you see that? As the church in Antioch with its leaders was worshiping, the Holy Spirit gave them a mission. I want you to go out. I want you to send your, your men. I want you to go out. And the culmination of that mission was what? More worship. Now, people who had never heard of Jesus, who had never heard of for the forgiveness of their sins and reconciliation with God and restoration. Now they're worshiping the one true God. Because the Holy Spirit gave the church in Antioch while it was worshiping a mission to reach the lost in faraway places. We begin and end Acts chapter 13 with worship. And it reminded me, many years ago when I was in seminary, I read a, a really great article by John Piper called Let the Nations Be Glad. It was in a large book on missions. He wrote a book called Let the Nations Be Glad, but there was just a chapter that he wrote, a very helpful article in this great book called, um, oh, what was it called? Perspectives on the World Christian Movement. And I just want to share a couple of thoughts uh, that Piper uh, wrote down. He said, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is the goal of missions because in missions, we simply aim to bring the nations into the white, hot enjoyment of God's glory. But worship is also the fuel of missions. You, you can't commend what you don't cherish. 
Missions begins and ends in worship. All of history is moving towards one great goal, the white-hot worship of God and of his Son among all the peoples of the earth. Mission is not that goal, it is the means. And for that reason, missions is the second greatest human activity in the world. See, Christian missions, whether it's your mom told you about Jesus, or you, you read a piece of paper on a park bench with John 3.16 on it, missions is... It's expanding, it's expanding the congregation of people who are singing an endless song of worship and praise to the creator. We're born, the Bible calls us idolaters. It it means false worshipers of false gods. We worship everything and anything but the person who made us, who alone deserves our utmost love and affection. And uh, what Christian missions does is, is, is it seeks to expand the worshiping community. True, redeemed, restored worshipers giving honor and glory and love to the one true God. And the song gets louder and louder and louder as more voices come in throughout history. And missions makes that possible. With every, with every uh, mission work more voices are added into the amazing chorus that will culminate, the book of Revelation tells us, when, when we are part of, if you follow Christ, you will be a part of the redeemed humanity uh, from all nations and tribes and tongues, languages, worshiping God together. God alone does it, but he uses the vehicle of missions. So, I have learned that great work requires great struggle. If there's something in your life worth keeping and worth maintaining and worth improving and perfecting, it probably involves great struggle. I have found that in order to, in order to bless and cultivate my marriage, I must struggle. We, we must struggle through our weaknesses and our selfish desires and, and our, our uh, com- competing interests. We must struggle through all of that to learn how to love and serve and understand one another. Uh, you may have started a business and you know that it involves great struggle to start something new and give it what it needs to succeed and to prosper. The civil rights movement involved great struggle, didn't it? Now, the cost of Christian missions is sacrifice. The cost of Christian missions is Personal sacrifice, me and you. And the cost of Christian mission is corporate sacrifice. Churches, groups of people, sometimes cultures and families have to make sacrifices. The Holy Spirit called the church in Antioch. Think about it. They were called to give up two of their best people. The beginning of Acts chapter 13, how many prophets and teachers, how many leaders are mentioned? Five. And the Holy Spirit says to the church in Antioch, I want you to give up two of them. That's more than a third of their leadership body. I want you to release two out of the five people who are leading your church. Actually, in in verse 3, we're told that, uh, that the church prayed more about it and fasted about it. And then they laid their hands on Saul and Barnabas. Laying their hands, it means they were symbolic. They were commissioning them to a work. 
uh, to, a, to a cause, to a mission. It says, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Now, in the original Greek, in which it was written, sent them off, the word there it means to release. And that's in a positive context. In a negative context, the Greek word was associated with divorce. Do you see what the word means? It, 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 the concept is they were letting go of these men that were ministering to them, that were invaluable to them. They were letting them go. Uh, one scholar said in modern terms, this is really cool. Remember that Antioch was a church plant. Right? The first church was Jerusalem. The mother church was in Jerusalem. Antioch, Antioch was a church plant. And yet, one scholar says, it's, it's the church plant that took up the call. It's the church plant that initiated overseas, the very first overseas missions project. But it was the church plant. And, and so you see how um, a corporate body had to make a pretty big sacrifice to commit to the mission that the Holy Spirit gave to them, not just corporately, right, but those who were sent also had to make sacrifices. We see Paul and Barnabas making sacrifices. In, uh, we didn't read this to you this morning, but if you go and look back at verse 9, uh, at one point Luke, start, Luke stops using the word Saul, and, he, and then now from now on he's only going to use the word Paul. Verse 9, it's, he says, But Saul, who was also called Paul... That's significant. It was common it was common for a Jewish person to take on a Greek or a Roman name in that culture. And now, now Saul is entering into predominantly Jewish, I'm sorry, predominantly Gentile cultures and cities. And so it makes sense that his name changes, but there's a significance to that. You read in the Old Testament about God meeting with people and their names change. And I think what's so profound about Saul becoming Paul is that Saul gave up his name for the sake of the name of Jesus. He gave up his name. He gave up his reputation to become a missionary for Jesus. Saul, Paul, is not the only one that had to give up something. Barnabas did too. I don't know if you caught on to this, but in the beginning of the chapter, Luke refers to them as Barnabas and Saul. By the end of the chapter, Luke is saying, Paul and his companions. And sometimes only talking about Paul. You see a shift here. You see a transition in leadership. Barnabas gave up his status. Barnabas was the one who had a vision for Saul. Barnabas was the one who was a peacemaker. He was a humble, gentle, generous man. And when, the, when, the, when Christians were afraid of Saul because he had been a Christian persecutor and a church hater, Barnabas was the one that befriended Saul and discipled him and rehabilitated him. And then Saul went into hiding for years. And then Barnabas was the one that found him and brought him out of hiding and gave him a job to do and gave him a, a place and a purpose and encouraged him and built him up and mentored him. And now for reasons we don't fully understand, and Luke doesn't reveal, Paul takes on prominence now. I guess Paul was God's lead man for the Gentile mission. And so you see Paul begin to take on more leadership and more prominence. And you see Barnabas begin to fade into the background. Barnabas gave up his lead role. In planting Deep Run Church, many people... Uh, many people that I think that a lot of, a lot of you have never met uh, that don't live here, 
Many people have given up stuff to make this ministry possible. Uh, June becomes technically uh, when this church uh, prayerfully will become financially independent. We went out and asked when we started this work, we went out to churches and individuals uh, all over the place, around the country and around the eastern co- uh, East Coast, and we asked for three-year commitments. And those commitments end at the end of May. Start praying. <laughs> We're doing very well. But um, a lot of people gave up their financial assets to make this church, this mission, a reality. Some people, some people said all we can do is commit $20 a month to you. Now, now, these are people who worship in other churches and are giving their resources to other ministries and said on top of that, oh, what we can do is we can give you $20 a month. Hey, $20 a month is a date to five guys. Maybe if you don't get a milkshake and just do the burger and the fries. It, you know, it's not like Texas Roadhouse or Ruth's Chris or something like that. But, but 20 bucks a month, that's a date. 20 bucks a month is is filling up a gas tank of a really small car, okay? Um, That's a sacrifice. A few people, very few, but some people said, I'm going to commit $3,000 a year to this mission. Now, I'm going to commit a portion of my annual bonus to this mission. $3,000 a year, that's like a really nice vacation. Really nice vacation. Um. You know, some, some churches gave up to Deep Run Church their best people. Some of their leading volunteers, some of you. Chapelgate Presbyterian gave up the whites to make this possible. Severna Park Evangelical Presbyterian gave up the Kozlowskis to make this possible. Herb Ruby said, I know a, I know a young couple who's just getting started and, and he, he could have recruited them, but he said, Brian, I, 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 want you, I want to introduce you to JT and Annie. And some of you, many of you, have different stories. Uh, Becky and I had to give up the comfort of being in an established ministry where you just assume the paycheck and the health insurance and the benefits and the pension are just coming on a monthly basis. Um, I, when, we, when we were getting ready to buy our house in Westminster in the spring of 2014, the, the loan, our lender pulled the plug at the last minute because they weren't convinced that I had a legitimate job. <laughs> because I, I had resigned from Severna Park Evangelical Presbyterian Church and my, my first paycheck working technically for the Mission Church, Deep Run Church, which technically didn't really exist except on paper, they didn't buy that it was a legitimate organization. So our, the sale of our house was waylaid about two weeks. We had to live with friends longer until the, loan, the lender was convinced that I wasn't a shyster. Um, you give up all sorts of security. Many of you, even to just, you know, churches can, you can be stereotypical about your worship experience. How many of you have given something up to walk into a middle school cafeteria? To have a worship service. You've given something up. Even if you've just come here recently. Um, you've sacrificed what you know. And who you know. To be a part of this mission. So the cost of missions. Is both a corporate sacrifice. And a personal individual sacrifice. But what I'm trying to impress upon you today. Is trust. That when God asks you to release something. It's for the best. 
If God asks you to release something for his reasons, it's for the best. Faith is trusting God with your perceived losses. We just love the good things that God gives us. We love the good people that God has put into our lives. Uh, But when we hoard our blessings, others don't benefit. I love apple pie. It is, I cannot express it, I cannot underestimate how much I love apple pie. I, I have tasted and seen that apple pie is good. And I, and I love it so much that, that I will even bake it for myself. And I love apple pie so much that I will bake it for my family and for my friends and for other people. If I had time on a Sunday morning, I would bake apple pie for the whole church. I love apple pie, and I, well, I love it so much that I want you to share it with me. Um, I, actually, way back in the early days when our launch team was meeting in my house every Thursday night, it was the fall. We got apples from Becky's family farm in upstate New York, and I made everybody an apple pie with ice cream, vanilla ice cream. <laughs> and I'll never forget, Steve White walked up to me and said, I just want to shake your hand. <laughs> Because, I don't know, I think all the planets had a line that night. It was the perfect, just every, the humidity, the dry, I don't know what it was. Everything came together, and it was like this alien apple pie. It worked out so well. Now, here's the thing about me. I love apple pie so much that if there's only one piece left, and I've already had one, I may not share it with you. (laughs) You know, I don't need another piece. I've enjoyed it, but but I still may not want to share it. If there's just one. Now, here's the problem with that. If I'm not willing to share that last piece of apple pie, it's not because I love apple pie. It's because I love me. It's not because I love apple pie so much. It's because I love myself too much. The very things, the very people that you're afraid of losing could be the very people and the very things that God intends to bless others with. And so the only way you will be convinced of this, friend, the only way you will be convinced to trust God with your perceived losses is to realize that there's a heart to the Christian mission movement. We've talked about its goal, which is worship. We've talked about its cost, which is is our, our corporate and your personal sacrifice. But there's a heart of Christian missions, and it's love. Psalm 34 sang the words, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. You'll never know if you don't taste, if you don't experience, if you don't trust him and and allow him to show you the amazingness of his goodness. Now, how can you know? How can you know that God is good? There's the Bible verse that was sitting on that bench. As our brother said earlier, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. He loves the world. That he sent his only son, that whoever should believe in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. God is a God of love and he pours himself out. And and the greatest manifestation of, of that pouring out is he sent God in human flesh, Jesus himself. And this is why Paul and Barnabas, were, when they were called, they went is because they believed in the love of God. And Paul, to the church in Corinth years later, would say this. 
proving that he tasted and saw that God was good because he, understand, he understood God's love revealed on the cross when Jesus hung there for his sins. And he said, the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died and he died for all so that we who live might, not longer, might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Paul tested the love of God and saw that it was rich and good and real and greater than anything he had desired before. And he said later that he was willing to forsake all things, not just his name, but many other things because he wanted to know Jesus more. Because he tasted and was convinced of that love. And that made his perceived losses a lot smaller. You can keep loving those people. You can keep loving the good things that God has given you. But you know what? They're too big in your eyes right now. And the only thing that will make them shrink enough for you to trust God is to be impressed by his love. Have you tasted the love of God? What did John Piper say? You can't commend what you don't cherish. Do you know that God loves you? I'm serious. Do you know that God loves you? It's going to be a question that sometimes we struggle with that. Do you know that God loves you? I'm not talking to somebody else. I'm talking to you. Do you know that God loves you? If my whole purpose in coming to Westminster was just to remind you every week that God loves you, then that's a good purpose. That's a good mission to have. If the mission of Deep Run Church is to let Westminster and Carroll County and the broader world know God loves you, and he proved it by sending Jesus to the cross, then that's a good mission. That's a good reason to exist. And the reason I'm convinced that I need to tell you that God loves you, friend, is because I'm convinced he loves me. I know he loves me. And that's the reason I can say it to you. And that is the heart of missions. That is the foundation of Christian missions. At its heart, it's about a God who, because of love, sends people to you. And it's about a group of people, because of love, constrained and compelled by the love of Christ, are willing to take risks and make sacrifices about their perceived loss and trust God and come to you and say, Jesus, Jesus offers love. So, if, if we would only trust God to take the best of what we have and the best of who we are and our best people and our best resources, if we would just trust him with all of this, just imagine what type of spiritual harvest would come from such reckless generosity. Let's pray. Father, we turn our attention now to the table, to the Lord's Supper, in which we remember your great love for us. Father, in faith, help us to trust you with our perceived, excuse me, with our perceived losses, that we may know your great love and that others may also. Amen.